Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, those in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Morning church. My name is Caleb. I'm part of the church here, a member. Also serve on the personnel committee. And Pastor Andrew uh, asked me to preach this morning, and so I have the privilege of doing that. Uh, he is, as most of you know, is with his family, uh, remembering uh, the life of his dad, who went to be with the Lord a little over, almost three weeks ago. So I'm going to pray for our time, and, and we'll be in the passage that Michael just read for us. If you are following along, we're going to be in Revelation 7. I think it's the end of the book, the end of the Bible, so just turn to the end. I think it might be around about 1,066 or so. Father, I thank you so much for this time. What a privilege it is to gather together with your body as worshipers. Father, would you meet us in this place, fill us with your spirit, open our eyes and our ears to receive from your word, to receive your truth. May it impact our hearts, may it impact our minds, may it impact our lives as we go forward. May you cause us to worship. May you stir up in our hearts a desire to praise you and to proclaim you. We thank you for your help. We thank you that you are with us in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to get straight to it. The, the title of the message this morning is worship is the beginning and end of mission worship is the beginning and end of mission and the big idea is this before you set your mind on mission turn your heart to worship before you set your mind on mission turn your heart to worship And this morning, I want to set aside the I shoulds and the how to's and cultivate a mindset of get to. Often we tend to think that our problem or our inability 
to do something we think we should do is because we lack the how-to. So if it's sharing the gospel, I just don't know how to talk about Jesus. I just don't know enough about how the gospel works to be able to share it. And so we can easily make these excuses about I don't know how to, but oftentimes the problem is that the the how-to is not the foundation for progress. Let me give you an example. Sewing. Sewing. Is that what you do? I don't know, but (laughs) sewing. Sewing is a good thing, right? Um, You have clothes, and they tear, they rip, and you need to mend them. And so sewing is a good thing for that purpose. But there's two problems that I have. The first problem is I don't know how to sew. I don't even know if I've put a button back on in my entire life. I'm not sure. I don't remember. And you might say, well, Caleb, there's, there's plenty of information out there. There's YouTube videos and how-to. There's libraries. If we still go to libraries where you can grab books and you can open it up and you can learn how to sew. But the second and primary problem is that I don't have any desire at all to sew. There's never been a day where I've woken up in the morning and I said, you know what, today I get to sew. I've never said that. Now, on Saturdays, I wake up in the morning and I do say, I get to make pancakes and eggs. I do say that. Making pancakes and eggs is work and it takes some knowledge of how to do it, but I want to do it. And so I get up and say, I get to do this, even though it is actually Work And so the fundamental problem is not necessarily the how-to or the you-should-to, because you could turn that sewing into you-should-to as well. Like Stephanie could say, my wife, you know what, Caleb, it's your clothes, (laughs) and we want to save money, right? So you should learn how to sew. And and she can basically, uh, by guilt, get me to work up enough desire to do it for a short amount of time, but eventually... That will run out. And it's the same thing with mission. If I want to sow, I need a heart for sowing. And if I want to pursue God's mission, I need a heart for mission. And my first point this morning is that the heart for mission is worship. And that's why worship is the beginning of mission. Let me read through verse 9 again. Actually, I'm going to skip through. There we go. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now picture this, this sea, this multitude of people that no one could number are all shouting, Salvation belongs to our God and sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a picture of worship. As I was reading this yesterday and thinking about it, like a multitude of people saying this all together, and they weren't just reading it. They weren't just 
reciting it. They were crying out. And so I want to read that again. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you can picture that, millions and millions of people all shouting, praising God because of his salvation. And there's a lot baked into that one verse. You could build a whole message on just that one verse because of what's not said. Salvation is not because of you. It's not because of me. And who's on the throne? It's, it's not you and me. It's God. And if we understand this verse, this is really, really good news. It's good news because we know that we are not enough. If we're honest with ourselves, if we left up our salvation to ourselves, we could never be sure we'd attain it. And it's good news that God, who is sovereign, who is ruler, who created all the heavens and the earth, salvation belongs to him. And because of that, our salvation is sure. It does not rest on us. It does not rest on our works. It does not rest on our efforts. And one of the primary distinguishing factors of the Christian faith and, and all other man-made religions and self-help philosophies is that self-help philosophies and man-made religions begin with you should and how to. You should be more self-control, and this is how you do it. You should eat better, and this is how you do it. You should exercise, and this is how you do it. You should be rich and wealthy, and this is how you do it. Self-help book after self-help book, religion after religion will all say that same message in different flavors and variations. And what they serve to do is present sort of a, an idea of something that could be good. But when you actually try to do it, it feels like a weight. It feels like a burden because no matter how hard you try, you can't live up to that picture of the ideal you. We fail. It's part of the human condition. And so Christian faith is freedom because it's not dependent upon our ability to keep up. It's not dependent on our ability to change ourselves into the ideal us. It is God who makes us righteous and worthy. Paul says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let me continue. Verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen.
It's a beautiful picture. It's, you've got angels, so you've got people, and then you have angels, and then you have elders, and then you have living creatures, and Revelation is a wild book. I don't have time to get into all of it, but there's these 24 elders who I don't know what they look like, or, but all they do is just worship day and night continually. And then you have these four living creatures who are described as sort of animalistic and humanoid. If you, if you look back just a couple of chapters, and, and they do the same thing. And so you have this course of everyone who's praising God and ascribing to God all of these attributes. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. It's a picture of worship. And we continue in verse 13. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's interesting, the, 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 the contrast between white and blood, right? Like you wouldn't imagine, you wouldn't think, I'm going to wash my clothes with blood and they would turn out white. But that's the, the image that we have. White comes from red. I have a love-hate relationship with cleaning. I, I love the result of cleaning. Things are clean. I hate the process. I don't like the process of cleaning for most things. But I love the feeling when it's finally done. Like when you detail a car, you vacuum them out, you wipe the windows, you wash the outside. You, you, I like the tires especially, getting that nice gloss on the tires, right? And it seems like anything you clean, whether it's your clothes or your house, the floors, your car, it seems like it lasts like a day, right, before it rains the next day, right? If you have kids, it lasts like a minute, basically, right? It doesn't last at all. And so no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you put in, no matter how spotless you make it, it just gets dirty again. And, and for me, I, I, it's, it's strange what happens. Like the, the cleaner my clothes, the, the more accident prone I become. Just the other day, I, I just put on this fresh hoodie that's light cream colored. And my wife, Stephanie, she set a trap for me. <laughs> I went downstairs and there was an open jar of chipotle salsa with chips right next to it. I was like, yum, chipotle salsa. And three chips in, all down my front. No matter how hard we try, it's impossible to keep things clean. There's a futility involved in sort of the physical aspects of cleanliness. And that idea applies spiritually as well. We're not spiritually clean. And so we attempt to do things in our lives to clean ourselves up, right? I don't know how many times I've heard in the church context, someone I haven't seen in church for maybe a year or whatever, they come, oh, you know, I'm just trying to get my life together. Like they were staying away because they felt like they had to get their lives together to the point where they could be present with the body. 
I just need to, to change some things in the new year. So we make New Year's resolutions to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves presentable. We feel this idea that we're dirty, that we're not clean. The Bible affirms this if we look in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now, wouldn't this be a lovely coffee mug verse? I found this uh, on the internet. Actually, I, I, uh, <laughs> that's a poor job of PowerPoint. Brandon would do a far fantastic job of this. But it's true. It's what we feel in our human condition. Whatever it is, we don't measure up fully. And the reason why this passage is good news is because this is not about us making ourselves clean. It's not, the, the message there isn't they washed their clothes in tide, in bleach, and it became clean. It says they, their robes were washed in Christ's blood. And the picture there is of Jesus being the one who cleanses us through his death, through the shedding of his blood. That by faith in Christ, we receive his righteousness. We are clothed. That's the symbolism of the white robes. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything we did to earn it, not because we went to Target and paid for it, we didn't have to pay anything. God gave it to us. That's a gift. That's the beauty of God's gift of grace is he's giving it to us through his son if we have faith in what he has accomplished on the cross. And so we can sit there. We can feel the fact that we're unclean. But if we believe in Christ, we can know that Christ has cleansed us. We are clean. And guess what? We continue to be clean forever. Nothing we do can restain the, clean, the cleanliness that Christ has bought on our behalf. I, I want us to hear that truth. Nothing we can do can restain what Christ has cleansed. Why? Because he is at the throne and he rules. And he said his work was finished. We have that by faith. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3. What is more, I consider everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And so verse 15 of Revelation says, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That first word is so important. 
on the basis of being cleansed. Therefore, they are before the throne in worship, and therefore we serve. The foundation of our serving, of our moving, of our proclaiming starts with knowing that Christ has cleansed us and worshiping at his throne in thankfulness for what he's done for us and then moving forward in proclaiming his goodness. Why? Because we've been changed. And it begins to reformulate our heart and our mind to a place of I get to rather than I only should to or know how to. This leads to my second point. Worship is the end of mission. Worship is not just the beginning of mission. Worship is the end of mission. Let me look at, back at verse 9. After this I looked and there, were before me, uh, there was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I want to focus on that first part. The picture here, it says, no one could number. So I tried to think about, like, what, how many people is that? So I've been, I don't know if you've been to a sporting event or a concert, like, that's a lot of people, but you can number that, right? If you know you're in a venue that's 65,000 with the Seahawks or 70,000 or whatever it is, like, you look around, if it looks full, you can say, well, it's about 65,000 or 70,000. We've had that experience, but he's saying, no one could number this crowd. So I just imagine, like, looking across the horizon to the end of as far as you could see, just a sea of people all around, 360 degrees, all worshiping God. I don't know what that number is. It says no one can count. Maybe it's billions. Maybe it's trillions. I have no idea. But they're all from different nations, tribes, tongues, peoples. This is a multi cultural representation of the people of God, and it's beautiful to me. And, and it wouldn't have happened that way without mission, right? Because the, God's people didn't start that way. It started as very Jewish thing, right? Jesus didn't immediately talk and share the gospel with all the nations, people, tribes, and tongues. But what he did is he empowered his disciples to go out and make disciples of the nations. That included all the people, tribes, and tongues. And that's the beauty of, of what God has done. He has, he has changed us. He has freed us from the bondage of sin. And now he's given us this mission that comes out of the heart of worship. To build the kingdom that Jesus is building. To be the the hands and feet, as it were, of Jesus, proclaiming his goodness, proclaiming the good news that we've been cleansed by his blood and that we get to do that because Jesus has freed us. What a beautiful picture. It's interesting. I, I kind of think, you know, will we still have our languages, right? right? All the, the languages that we natively speak in heaven. Will we still look different? Apparently, in this picture, it was very obvious that this is a people of all different colors, all different nations, ethnicities, 
all different languages, and it's beautiful. You only get there because people are bold enough to speak out, bold enough to share. If we know Jesus, if we worship Jesus, then we will in some way proclaim Jesus. The gospel and worship is infectious. It's contagious. I pray for a Jesus worship pandemic. I hope it spreads. I mean, that's what has happened. That's not just a hope for the future. That has happened. We are here because God made it happen. People were faithful. None of us would be here if people were just like, oh, that's not good news. Or that's good news, but, you know, I'm just going to keep that in my pocket. It happened because people received the good news and they were so overjoyed at seeing the power of God at work, they, they couldn't help but proclaim and tell others. I, I want to tell a little story, and it might seem disconnected, but I think it will connect. So, so Daphne, our youngest daughter, is a little over seven months old now. And about two weeks after she was born or so, um, Stephanie went and took her to the doctor, to the pediatrician, and, and uh, she gave me, so Stephanie called me on FaceTime, video call, and immediately, like I saw the look in her eyes, it was just, my heart sunk when I saw her. He says, the doctor has something to tell you, and the doctor got on, on the call, and she said, started asking about, talking about ethnicity or something, I didn't know where she was going, but finally she said, um, the newborn screen showed us positive for cystic fibrosis. And I was like, whoa, cystic fibrosis. I'm racking my brain, what is that? You know, and seeing Stephanie with tears in her eyes and the doctor with just this very solemn um, sound in her voice, like, 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 this is bad. That's what it felt like. It was weighty. It was heavy. And afterwards, I, you know, I'll try to not make it a super long story, but... We asked people to pray. We didn't know what to do. I'm, you know, Google searching cystic fibrosis, blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's, it's not immediately deadly. People can live, but they have shortened lives. And it's, we asked people to pray, our community group, others, friends, family. And so they said, you know, you need to get another test, um, something called a sweat test. Literally, you go into children's hospital, and they, they, they put this electrode on her, and it warms her skin, and they get, literally, they collect the sweat, and they measure, like, the saltiness of it. And apparently, that's a, a very almost certain indicator of, of cystic fibrosis. So we go, and we get the test, and, and while we're waiting, we're, we're literally sweating it out, right? Just <laughs> what are the results going to be? And we finally get the call, and see, good news the results of the sweat test were absolutely normal. We're like, praise God. Praise God. But she still wasn't out of the woods yet. They said, okay, there's, there's liver tests you need to have, liver function. And, and we got it at the same time. So we were waiting for those results. And, of course, we're just like, you know, biting our fingernails. What are, those, what are these results going to be? And so the nurse calls us up. And the nurse says, I have your results of the, the liver test. And she said, the results are positive. 
I said, the results are positive. Like, what does, what does that mean? Like, positive as in good or, or positive as in she has cystic fibrosis? And she said, I'm not sure, but the results are positive. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my goodness. She said, I'll have the doctor call you <laughs> and explain. And so, again, we're just like, oh, no, this, maybe she really has it. And so we pray, and finally the doctor calls us back and says, I'm so sorry. It means that the liver has the right enzymes. It's positive in the right levels. We're good. And we're just like, oh, my goodness. Praise God again. <laughs> but she still wasn't out of the woods yet because she had to redo the original test that showed that she has cystic fibrosis. And she, by that time, she had taken it twice and both times had elevated levels. And so she took it a third time. And... Our pediatrician calls us as we've got the results of this third test, and the levels are still elevated. And we're just like, what? Like, so we thought, okay, we thought we we're out of the woods, and now this means, of course, we're going to have to go back to children's, have all these tests, right? And then Stephanie's like, wait a minute, what's the level again? And she said it's like 76 or something. Like, That's exactly the same as it was last time. Is there, is there any chance, like, they could have made a mistake and just gave the same level. And the doctor's like, oh, well, um, yeah, I, I guess that's possible. I'll, I'll double check with the state because the state is the one that does these tests. And, and uh, I remember when Stephanie said that, it's like, oh. I almost was like, oh, but I was like, okay, I'll just let her ask it. And uh, I don't know, maybe just an hour or two later, the pediatrician calls back and says, wow, I've never had the state get back to me that quickly. It was a mistake. They recorded the value wrong. It's actually like way lower than it. it was perfectly normal. And she says, at this point, I think we can affirmatively say <laughs> she doesn't have cystic fibrosis. I remember in that moment again, praising God. And I was on the call. I said, I just couldn't help. I said, you know what? I, I don't know. And I was talking to the doctor. I don't know what you feel about God. But every single time we've prayed, God has turned good news or bad news into good news. And I don't remember the doctor's response. But I know that I wasn't planning to say that. Right? That wasn't part of some this wasn't part of some grand strategy that I had, but it was something that God was doing and I couldn't help but share and see the power of God through answered prayer and say this is my God. He deserves the glory. And I hope that missions begins to look more like that. Now, now, I didn't share the whole gospel with her on the conversation. But God has everyone on the journey. And we play a part. And at times, we're just planting a seed. And someone else comes along and they till the ground. And, and we all are contributing. And God is bringing people into his fold, into the kingdom. And I've had a couple of times in my life where I was on the closing end of the deal where it's like I'm sharing the gospel, the full thing, and it's like, I think I believe. I'm like, whoa, you believe? Praise God. There's been two or three times in my life where that's happened. But there's been so many other times where I've had conversations and it didn't seem like it went anywhere or it seemed like it went on deaf ears. And then a year later, two years later, I see them. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm fellowshipping at this church now. I'm, I'm, I believe in Jesus. I'm walking with the Lord. I'm like, praise God. I have a small little part to play. 
And that's the part that by God's grace, we all get to pray. But it starts in a foundation of worship, of seeing the power of God work to cleanse us, to heal us, to see the power of God to continue to be with us as we serve. The, the danger is when we divorce mission from worship. When we divorce mission from worship, it becomes going back to this idea of man-made religion, starting with the should to and the how to. And if we operate from the flesh, as it were, from the should to and the how to, we might go for a while, right? You might get me to sow for a while, but eventually I'll give up. You might get people to share the gospel for a while, but if we're not doing it out of a heart of worship, we run dry. We run out of fuel. We run out of steam. And we become bitter, burnt out, apathetic, angry, or all of the above. Some of us are in that space. This morning, some of us are in that space of bitterness or apathy, of anger, of burnout, of stress. Maybe it's been for months, maybe it's been for years. But even in this passage of praise and worship, God has something to say for us. And so I'll end with these final verses. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Verse 16 is a picture of the desert. They're hungry, they're thirsty, the sun is beating down on them, they're in pain, they're crying. And there's three things from this passage that I want to pull out to encourage us. Number one, Jesus is at the center of the throne. Not us, which is good news. Sometimes in our pain, sometimes in our suffering, sometimes in our wandering, we want to fix it ourselves or we want to place us at the center or we doubt that God's at the center. But Scripture is saying that Jesus remains at the center of the throne even in our spiritual desert. Number two, Jesus is with you in the middle of the desert. The Scripture says Jesus is our shepherd, which means he cares for us. He's there with us. Jesus has been there before. And the third thing is Jesus will lead you out of the desert. And so even if we go through times in our lives where we're in the spiritual desert, Jesus is saying, that's not your destiny. That's not where he's going to leave you. That's not your end goal. That's not your final resting place. It's for a season. And it's painful and it hurts. But God is there with you. 
and he will lead you out. Stephanie, my wife, has been in a sort of spiritual desert, and, and I wanted to invite Stephanie up to share about her story that I hope will be encouraging. And this is Daphne, who has tested positive. <laughs> Thank you, Caleb. Hi, church family. I've had like two and a half hours to uh, scribble some thoughts down about this, but I hope this will be encouraging. I've been in a desert for a long time. Um, thought maybe it would be the rest of my life, but I recently had um, what well, feels like a little bit of a breakthrough in um, understanding God more and understanding uh, where he would have me. Um, Caleb gave me a few talking points, but bear with me if this is a little bit rough. I'm trying to condense several years into a couple minutes. Um, I entered a spiritual desert about 13 and a half years ago when, after moving to Seattle, I uh, had several traumatic things happen to me. I was in a um, pretty bad car accident, uh, which put my career of dancing in a ballet company on hold. Um, soon after that, I was uh, stalked by a random stranger um, for several months. It's a bizarre story. It was in the Seattle Times, uh, and he went to jail for stalking me. Um, after several of these trying circumstances, I started to really feel like the bodily effects of stress and anxiety, um, just the visceral like, drop feeling emotionally like I was dropping like from a skyscraper um, with no way to, <laughs> to have my fall um, softened. Um, I started having really intrusive suicidal thoughts and panic attacks and um, really the verses about God's peace in the Bible felt like they did not make sense in my circumstances. Um, and that's, I think, where the desert began for me, um, feeling like, oh, God, my, my quiet time with you has always been um, full of shalom and feeling like I could always feel his presence and peace. And all of a sudden, it felt inaccessible to me and just entered a period of real disillusionment. Um, the desert was very lonely. I felt isolated. I felt like as much as I tried to explain this quandary to others and never quite made sense or like people's advice never quite hit the nail on the head for what my heart needed to feel like <laughs> I could open my eyes and understand what the Lord had. Um, obviously, <laughs> spanning 13 and a half years was a long time. Um, it's almost my full time of living in Seattle and more than a third of my life. And I felt like maybe God would never bring me out of this desert. But um, actually just last weekend, I had um, a really impactful time with my therapist. And believe me, I've had many therapists and many a good talk with Caleb about understanding God's peace and what that means viscerally to feel his peace. I, I thought I was praying the right way and believing the right things, but I'm still not feeling this peace. And, um, and she really helped me put together the pieces of um, reading those verses about God's peace in context with Jesus, feeling a lot of um, visceral unrest and his journey to the cross, um, sweating tears of blood and feeling forsaken by God. 
And I was really able to feel like God, I could identify with God. I had a Savior that could um, identify with my weaknesses. Um, And my quiet times are not about (laughs) just feeling God's visceral peace for me and feeling like I'm skipping through a playground of flowers, Um, but really knowing him and, um, and that peace may or may not be felt viscerally always, but knowing God is really the goal and um, the end of my existence here. Thanks for letting me share. When she shared that with me, because we've had many conversations, some of, some of the words have been helpful, many of them not, you know? And uh, she said, I think... I think I've come to grips with it. And she shared with me, I was like, again, praise God. Praise God for his goodness. Even through years of spiritual desert, God was with her, bring her through. She didn't always see it. Um, But now she sees it. And I'm just so thankful and so grateful for God's love. And I just want to end with praising God. And so I, I, I would love everyone to stand, and we're going to read together from verse 12. So I'll read the first part, and then where it says congregation, well, we're going to read that together. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.